Mosey Nation, in this interview with Evan Carmichael, who's an amazing YouTube content creator. You guys can check out, he has a YouTube channel that's got, uh, I think, a few million subscribers on it. He interviewed me to talk about content. And uh, ironically, he's the guy who's the content king. But there was just a few things that were unique, and he had done a lot of homework and asked really unique questions about how we think through content, how we think through leverage, how we think through doing more of the stuff that works and what stuff doesn't work that I see a lot of people doing as entrepreneurs who are trying to build their brands, trying to build their businesses. And so I think that you'll be able to take a lot of really tactical nuggets away from this short interview that we did as a live. Enjoy. People will hate you for who you are more so because of what it makes them feel about themselves. Just through my own insecurities, I wanted to create different pillars of my life that would be successful, quote, like beyond reproach. Welcome to the game where we talk about how to get more customers, how to make more per customer, and how to keep them longer, and the many failures and lessons we have learned along the way. I hope you enjoy and subscribe. Alex, I'm in the house. How you doing, man? Good. I'm, I'm in the, my, my closet, my, uh, you know, my, my world's greatest closet. The uh, YouTube studio. <laughs> yeah, my YouTube studio. <laughs> I love a lot of stuff about you, but but the first one was, dude, this guy just gets up and he's proof that great content wins. Because <laughs> you're sitting in the closet and, and with that, with like total respect, but it's not about like the high-end camera and editing and B-roll. It's like, here's a guy sits in his closet and just speaks his truth into the camera. And I think that's what holds a lot of people back, man. It's like they're too afraid to, to get going because they don't have the perfect gear and perfect microphone. And here's Alex with his nose strip and undershirt in his closet just <laughs> making videos. You know, as a side note, um, a big part. So there's a handful of key things that made me decide to start like making content and things like that. And it was about, I guess, now 18 months ago, because before that, I was kind of silent on social media by and large. And it was actually an interview that you had done with Brad Lee. Um, where you said there's this huge vacuum on YouTube um, with regards to like, I think you said like higher level business stuff from people who were business people, but not YouTube influencers who were, who made their money, you know, doing YouTube stuff, but made their money elsewhere and could apply those principles. And I think you had said something to the extent of like, it doesn't need to be dolled up. It, you know, it's just, it's basically what you're saying. We're like, at the end of the day, if the content is, is good enough or valuable enough to the audience, people, it, there's a, there's a big audience for it. That's, that's not being served. And so that was actually one of the the two or three things that, that pushed me over the edge to start making content. Um, so I, I want to, I'll, I'll thank you for that. Uh, because that, that was one of the podcasts that, um, that really made me take a big step towards deciding to do it. Cool, man. Well, I'm glad that helped. It's a small world. And listen, a lot of a lot of people then who look like you, who've done, who've had a lot of success in the business world, then come to make YouTube content. They're off building seven figure studios. Like I've helped a lot of these guys get their channels launched, and they won't do it until it's perfect. And they have a seven figure like home studio, spending six figures just on this one arm to move a camera around, like legit. And then and they're too afraid to get started because they've hit success in one field, and now they're coming to something new, and they don't want to get started looking bad from scratch. You, on the other hand, not that you look bad, but it's like it's it's <laughs> it's you. Like this this is Alex is going to show up. He's going to share his wisdom. And, and so how did you, did you just never care or how did you get over that hurdle? I was like, you know what? I'm just going to make it. I mean, we're big fans of imperfect action. And so, and I think that we're also, at least I'm a big student of like, you learn through doing, not through preparing to do, uh, because I think a lot of times you learn as you're doing what things you thought were important at the onset are significantly less important. So it's like, you know, I think the thumbnails and the headlines and the first, you know, 20 seconds matter a lot more than spending an hour setting up the lighting, you know what I mean? And so it's just like return on time and effort. 
And so, yeah, so I mean, if we want to learn something new, at least in the companies that we have, it's like we just start doing, we pull, we pull the thread that we can see and we just keep pulling and figure it out as we go. And I think we end up getting to where we're trying to go faster um, just through ex- giving ourselves permission to suck. I love it. Now, I've helped a lot of people kind of move from direct marketing world into YouTube land and almost immediately it's okay how do i get them on my free ebook and click and you know funnel them and and retarget them and sell my coaching and upsell yeah. all this because it's like that's just part of ingrained mindset of of direct marketing yeah i know i was waiting for the shoe to drop with alex okay where's alex's thing and just video after video to video it's not there why isn't it there because in your gym business you did yeah. it all yourself mm-hmm. and then you 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 taught the trainings like i don't want to do this i mean i'll teach you how to do it why, yeah. why did this not become, I'll teach you how to do this too? I think, I think my view of business has shifted over time. And so I think that if you have a longer time horizon and you have capital or you don't need the money from whatever you know, promotion you're doing, I think that goodwill compounds faster than revenue. Uh, and so I think what you said is a really perfect example of like, I think a lot of people are always waiting for the other shoe to drop when people are receiving value. And so right at that point, whenever they're expecting that shoe to drop and then it doesn't, they do make a purchase, but they make a purchase of goodwill, which is all of a sudden they transition from, I really like this guy's stuff. Let's see what he sells me to. I really like this guy's stuff. I'm going to tell other people because he hasn't tried to sell me anything. And so I think that's where you get like an additional component of virality to stuff. And I think it depends on the mission of the person. You know what I mean? Like, this is not how I make my money um, at all. Uh, and so, you know, and a lot of this stems from a, a rather contrarian worldview that I have, which is just like, I don't think many of the things that we do will amount to anything in the long term. And so, the things that I enjoy that I deem meaningful are helping, you know, other entrepreneurs get started because I know that I was in a very dark place when I started. And if, you know, if, if the, the lessons that I had that caused me pain um, can help someone else, then they won't have been in vain overall. And so that's, that's kind of the, the, the catalyst behind doing all the stuff um, to begin with. But the reason I don't sell stuff is partially for goodwill, partially because I don't want to create a business around this. Um, now we do, I mean, obviously we have our, our portfolio. So, you know, if, 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 if somebody has a company that's doing 3 million, 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, you know, 40 million a year and they want, uh, want help and they, you know, they found value in the stuff, then yeah, we're, we're, we'd love to, but we're buying, not selling. Uh, it's, you know, it's a slightly different uh, conversation, but that's, that's, it's a different way of, of doing it and an old business model, to be honest, like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, you know, having in the private equity world too, it's like creating what they call proprietary deal flow um, is a very valuable thing. And so, uh, I think Nabal Ravikant also said one of the best ways to monetize uh, a brand is to monetize off like the 0.0001%. Like if you just got shares in Facebook early on, you could do everything else you want in life for free and help everybody uh, rather than trying to sell something to everyone. And there's just different strategies overall. It's just for me, I also prefer and feel like I can provide the most value to a business that's very big and growing. And to everyone else, it's like I can help more people without introducing operational complexity or a loss of goodwill. Um by just providing this stuff for free. So you go from in your late teens and early 20s, kind of living your dad's life, going to school, being yeah. a management consultant, yeah. the whole kind of Iranian work ethic, yeah. become a doctor, all that stuff. And then at 22, you decide, no, uh, peace out. I'm not doing this. And and your dad feels you're making this giant mistake. Of course. Um, but, then, but then what I loved about that story was that he comes back and gives you his his only ever apology to you yeah. uh, for saying it was a mistake. What did you what did you have to do to then ultimately make him proud that he apologized to you? Well, 
I mean, it, there's, probably, there's probably layers to this. You know, I mean, everyone's relationship with their parents are, are different. But for me, at least my, my dad, he, he was very much a material success guy. Um, like every time he introduced somebody, like before he got in the car, after he got in the car, he'd be like, oh, this is so-and-so, this is how much money he makes, right? And so it was very clear whether he said it consciously or unconsciously, like that money was what to him is what was most respectable about someone. Um, he would probably not like me saying that, but not through his words, but through his actions, it became clear to me that that is what he valued. And so for me to gain the affirmation or, or the approval of my father, I had to make money, but he also has his, you know, his own ego and his own pride and whatnot. And so it couldn't be like, I just have to match the amount of money that he makes. It's like, I had to make more money than he'd ever made in his entire life for that to really solidify. And we're both pretty um, domineering personalities. And so we had to, there was like a five year period where we didn't talk too much. Um, and there, I think there had to be a power shift um, that had to occur. And it only really occurred when uh, the, the, the evidence was overwhelming. Um, and so like when I started making money, um, I mean, I think the first year that we made like $10 million, uh, he was like, well, we'll see how long it lasts. Like it wasn't, you know what I mean? So like, it, it, it wasn't just like, you have to make more money. It had to be so insurmountable, the evidence that it was undeniable. And so I think that that's also been a theme that, that I apply to a lot of the facets of my life is that just through my own insecurities, I wanted to create different pillars of my life that would be successful, quote, like beyond reproach so that no one could say like, Alex is in good shape. It's like, no, he's in such crazy shape that no one can say that he's overweight. Right. Or, you know, he's, he's, he's not just like doing okay, but he's making so much money that no one can say that he's not successful. I think honestly, that's just because of my own insecurities. I don't think that's a a testament to anything besides that. Um, I may still harbor those and I just have evidence that that allows me to function, you know, better, Uh, uh, you know, and live a, live in a more normal lifestyle rather than continually suffer uh, from those just because those, that evidence acts as a crutch against the insecurities that I have. So hopefully that makes some sense. I love it. So I've got a, a fun exercise that I wanted, to, as, soon as, as soon as I found out you're coming on, I was like, okay, here's, here's what I want to ask Alex. Talking about growth, and most people watching, in my honest, your honest, are probably in the early stage, still in the like, I'm even just trying to get, I'm getting started to get started. But you've also focused on a lot of the high-end strategies as well as what you can do to actually grow. So I'm wondering from your first 10,000 to then like, and not just you, like maybe prescriptive advice yeah. now. And then let's add a zero each time. So 10,000 to 100,000, a million. Like what's the mindset shift that I have to go by adding a zero to my revenue every step of the way so I don't get stuck? It's, it's a really good question. So when you're adding zeros, you're, you're, you're adding an order of magnitude, right? So it's a multiple you know, of 10 that's happening with each of those scenarios. And the only way you can really add an order of magnitude is not by doing 10 times more work, but by adding leverage, right? And so we have to have leverage to the things that we do. And so you know, in the beginning, you transition from being employed to being self-employed, right? And so that's like kind of the first transition. And then your, your limit is going to be your time and how much you can bill per hour, right? From there, your your next level is going to be building the core team, which is usually five, you know, five or so people, which will be representative of departmental functions within a company, right? You'll have some element of promotion, some element of selling, some element of customer service, some element of finance and things like, like and that would probably and then you are kind of managing in that. You're not really really leading yet. You're really just managing the people below you. And in that, in that time, typically you are better at the job at each of those roles than the people beneath you because you cannot afford people who will be better than you at those roles. From there, adding another level of leverage, you then add another layer of management that goes and then you really transition into being a leader because you can't possibly, like each of those people now have five people underneath of them, right? Now you're, now you're at, you know, 25 or 30 people. And most of the, um, 
most of these stagnation points do happen uh, around triplings. And that's usually because another whole layer of infrastructure needs to get built within a company. And so that's where people don't know what has to happen. And so that's when you go, you know, and once you're a leader, you have to go into like kind of step into the visionary role and you're really hiring people who come with batteries included, solutions already having proven inside of them, not I have to go find some person, teach them how to manage a sales team, teach them how to recruit, like, no, no, like you're finding somebody who's already built a 30 person sales team to help you build, take your, take your five person to a 30 person sales team, right? It's like, you want to find somebody who's already run the Olympic gold and then have them run it with you rather than like, oh, I'm a running coach. I've never run gold, but I'll try and do it with you. And the thing is, is that when you're earlier on, the, the reason it's difficult is because you can't afford some of those people yet. And so that's why early on, you have to spend a disproportionate amount of your time learning the skills, Right rather than hiring people who already have those skills. So in the beginning, you're learning and your ability to learn is the bottleneck. And later, it's your ability to recruit people who have learned. And so it's just like in business where you can buy or you can build, like in terms of growing through mergers and acquisitions. So this is really going from top down. At, at, a, at a medium level, you can buy or build talent. You can buy talent by paying premium dollar for the best people, or you can build it. And both of those are strategies. You can build a, a system for, for, design, for designing and training salespeople. That was something that we were really good at. And so we could take people for less than top dollar and then make them into top dollar salespeople, right? Now, the, the risk that you have there is that some people then start recruiting your salespeople because right? <laughs> you, you did the building for them. But it just depends on the strategy of the business in term, you know, overall. And so um, in terms of going from 10K to uh, 100K a month, to a million a month, to 10 million a month, each of those represent orders of magnitude on leverage that you can employ within the business. And I'll just finish with one little thing. I know I just ran it a little bit. The leverage, uh, and this is from Naval Ravikant. This isn't me, but I remember the four C's. He, he doesn't say four C's. I remember four C's because otherwise I can't remember it. But it's like, you've got, you've got code, you've got content, you've got collaboration, you've got capital, right? And so collaboration is the base of that pyramid of just getting other people to do stuff for you. So you get time back by having other people give you their time and you pay them for it, right? The level above that is capital. You use other people's money to fuel growth. Right. And if you know how to structure your business properly, you can also use your customers' money to fuel growth if you prop if you if you monetize well in that you can if you can set up your, your marketing and your sales system such that you can make more money than it costs you to acquire a customer and the next customer within the first 30 days, you have a negative acquisition cost, which means you can use that money to then go get more customers. And you basically have a limitless acquisition cycle. Now, you'll still have bottlenecks, but there'll be infrastructure bottlenecks on the back end. So there's always a bottleneck, but it, it no longer becomes acquisition. So you have collaboration, then you have capital, and then the top two are, are content and code. So you have software, which has zero cost of replication, which gives you limitless leverage. And to the same degree, like what you've done with media, right, content, it doesn't cost more money for more people to see this. Like if you and I were on here with just one person or you and I are on here with a million people, it costs the same amount for us to do it, but we have leverage. And so most businesses, and this is like a fun rule of thumb for anybody who's looking, when you look at the biggest businesses that have been around the longest, they typically will have all four of those aspects of leverage built within the business. Like you look at Facebook, they have they have lots of people, they have capital from the outside, they sell media based on code. And so as you're looking to scale the company, it's like, how many boxes of these leverage can I check? And I would even look at my own life and I'd say right now we have three of the four. Like I don't have a big software component within my business, but we do have media, we do have uh, collaboration and we do have capital. And so I think that for us, and I made a presentation about this, like I think for us going from 10 million a month to maybe hundred million a month, I'll probably have to figure out some sort of code thing. Uh, but at, you know, at current, uh, we're able to, you know, still do 10 million a month with the stuff that we're doing. 
Mosey Nation, real quick, if you are a business owner that has a big old business and wants to get to a much bigger business, going to 50, $100 million plus, we would love to talk to you. And if you like that or would like to hear more about it, go to acquisition.com. You can apply anywhere on the page and talk to one of our team and see if we can help you get there. You've made some videos talking about you basically get your championship through the draft, right? Yes. It's like you're picking the right person, right? Yes. And you're picking them on the draft and, and Leila's got the gut instinct and she's the best yeah. at doing it. But in free agency, so the draft is you're, you're picking somebody out of college and they're young and hungry, and but they're already good and you're making them better versus free agency. You're getting already the best. They may not be with you for too long. Like you think about the Yankees just constantly buying the best players, but maybe not having mm. the best farm system. Interesting. So it's, it's a, the question is buying or building, kind of what we were referencing earlier. Like, would I prefer to buy buy the talent or build the talent? In the building, you're already still going for the upper echelon, right? Like you're mm-hmm. recruiting out of Harvard instead of yeah. just recruiting anybody. It's one on the pick. And I think one of those is like, it, it gets more nuanced, but like you can see raw potential uh, and say like, okay, like the people coming out of Harvard have raw potential. They usually don't have a tremendous amount of experience, right? And so you're still just taking somebody who's at a, a higher echelon of processing power, work ethic, and because they had to to get to that point. So they've proven all of these base characteristics, and then then we can equip them with kind of the more niche skills. Um, but I think it's probably a combination of both. And if Layla were here, she'd give you probably a sexier answer. Um, I think that what she would normally say, because this is definitely her her realm, is the 80-20 split, is that you want 20% of the people that are on your team to already have been there, done that. And then the 80% to be kind of building their, their arsenal skill set. And that also balances usually where the compensation goes. You know what I mean? Because you're paying for the roadmap with the people who are in the 20%. And then the 80% are learning from the 20%. And then in their next chapter, they might be in the 20% because they did it with you and your company. Um, I think the goal is always to keep people, you know, as long as we can provide meaningful opportunity to them. And I think to, to go back to the original leverage thing, you will attract much better talent having a better opportunity vehicle overall. So people will be, the best people are attracted to the best opportunities. And so if you want to start a dry cleaning business and brick and mortar business, you probably won't get, you know, a Harvard Business School graduate. This is probably not going to be, you probably can't pay them. Um, it's probably just not overwhelmingly interesting to them, right? And so is there a way that we can transform that? Well, probably, you know, if you, if all of a sudden you worked with a thousand dry cleaners because you had a licensing system or a franchise model, then you might be able to attract that person because the opportunity is superior. And so I think it is one in the draft, but part of winning in the draft is having, is being the Yankees. And you can get talent for less if you're the Patriots because they want to be on a championship team, right? And so it's kind of the, the, it goes back and forth on both sides. Like you can pick better people, which create championship teams, but championship teams attract better people. I love it. Listen, everybody's commenting about your nose strip. What, when do we get, when do we get the Mosey Nation <laughs> nose strips? That, Mosey Nation sponsored. That, yeah, that, <laughs> that's, that's the product to sell. Yeah, right? Yeah, that and, and beaters, you know, my, my, my proprietary wife beater. Uh, you know, I will say this. I've had a lot of people, I mean, like, dude, if you release a nose strip, I'm like, it's not my business. You know what I mean? And so I think a lot of people, what happens is they are so afraid of leaving money on the table they leave the biggest money on the table because they're trying to, you don't want to sacrifice an empire to pick up a pot of gold. Right. And so we risk our empire. We risk the big thing, the main thing by getting distracted because it's not core to the strategy, right? Like the strategy of what I do is make stuff that is really valuable to people from in the trenches experience that is happening in real time right now that they can use and make money with. And if they then use it and make money and never work with me, I sleep fine. If they do end up becoming, you know, they cross the $3 million, $5 million, $10 million threshold, and then they want to work with us because they know the stuff that they, we, we did work, awesome. And then we're buying and not selling, 
right? In the same situation. And that's the strategy. Now, if so, you know what I mean? But like, what am I really going to make with a, with a, with a no strip, right? Like, let's say even, you know, 10,000 people buy no strips for what, 20 bucks. You know what I mean? Like 200 grand, 200 grand a month. It's not worth the brand equity. You know what I mean? It's the, it's the short cash grab that just doesn't make sense, at least for me, for the big picture of where we're trying to go. And so that's why you, we don't pick up that stuff. I'd even give it away for free. Like it's just branding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that would work too. You know, um, and I honestly, like, I think it, I think what you represent is, is even bigger than the message in that here's a guy who's just willing to show up as he is. Like who else is on most guys who look like you, who've done what you've done would be super. Like it has to be, I got my suit on and I need to have it perfect. And you're in an undershirt and the nose trips. And it just it represents the, the willingness to just be unapologetically you because yeah. most people are still living under their father's thumb and say, no, I'm going to go stick being a management consultant because I'm afraid to be me. Like, that's what a no strip yeah. represents to me is like the courage to go off and be you and not hide. No, I appreciate it. And one of the things that Layla said, one of her biggest fears was, you know, because we had to consciously say, like, do we want to gain fame? You know what I mean? Because like, we think if we're going to do it, we're going to try and do our best. And we think people, you know, it'll gain notoriety. And I think the last, you know, 12 to 18 months have been, has been proof of that. But like, you give up some stuff, like you give up the ability to walk out and not have people recognize you and things like that. And one of the things that she said she was afraid of, um, she's like, I never want someone to meet me and be like, you're so different in person. You know what I mean? And so I think a lot of that is, is you brought up the, you know, the word, you know, unapologetic to yourself. You know, we like to define authenticity in terms of like what you truly believe deep down is aligned with what you actually say and what you say is aligned with what you actually do. And if all three of those things are aligned, then you are in alignment. And I think people can feel that. Um, and I think a lot, like, a lot of people are really afraid to tell people what they really think. Um, and then they're definitely afraid to act in accordance with that. And so I think, I guess it's, it's courage to be hated because people will hate you for who you are more so because of what it makes them feel about themselves. And so, but that's, but like being able to separate that hate from uh, uh, how I quantify my own self-worth or how much I respect myself um, is something that you have to separate, I think, at some point. I know there's a little bit of a tangent there, but it's just, you know, top of mind. No, that's great. I mean, you're, I think uh, what's fun with you is you're equal part like pragmatist and strategies and philosopher. This <laughs> is this beautiful little mix. As someone, me, who struggled with uh, fame and ego and it didn't want it to be about me and just hide behind the, the people I was profiling, I fought with my agent for years on this. And uh, he eventually worked it in that, hey, the more people know you, the more people will hear the message and will then take action. That's like your story actually has a ton of power. And one of the greatest compliments I got of all time was at an event I was doing. And the guy came up to me in Minnesota afterwards and said, Hey, you're even better in person than what I thought. Right. And says so like, it doesn't have to go the other way in terms of Leila's fears that you're totally different. It could be even better in person if that's how you decide to show up. Yeah. And that's hopefully the, hopefully the goal. Let's just close up on, on frameworks. So you have so many frameworks for decision-making or algorithms, like internal Alex algorithms, what are some of the most important frameworks for you that allow you to make decisions a lot faster? Well, they kind of get generated on demand. You know I mean? It depends on the problem that we're trying to solve. And so it's like, if we're trying to grow a business, then there are going to be certain frameworks that we're going to look at it through. If it's, if it's a framework around like, how do I feel about a certain situation? Like there's a stimulus, there's a circumstance that arises, like how am I going to react? You know, you have you have frameworks around that. There's frameworks that you use in marriage, right? And so I think it would depend on the frameworks that you use in, in how you train. You're like your body. How do I eat? How do I sleep? How do, like all of those are different frameworks. And 
I think for the big picture, a lot of people like frameworks are, are just are just shortcuts for decision making. And so what we're doing is just codifying the variables that we use to make a decision uh, deliberately so that the next time we're confronted with the decision, we don't need to use, remake and rewalk through that process so that we can save the time and energy. And so, you know, if you're confronted with thousands of decisions every day, if you have to remake all of these decisions over and over again, you waste a tremendous amount of time and attention. Whereas if you can, once you like, once you've made the decision once it's made forever because you have the process documented, then you just are able to have a lot more leverage on your time and then make a higher number of decisions and quality of decisions because quantity based on the fact that you're using a framework that's shorthand for, for good decision-making and then the quality based on the fact that you have so much excess attention now from what you gained back on these prior decisions that you don't have to remake uh, to then apply them to the ones that are more complex, that are more strategic, that have higher leverage and will yield outsized returns in your business, your life, your marriage, your, your, your body, whatever. I know legacy doesn't matter to you. And, and I don't focus on it either. And and I'm also curious to know if you know any of your like 800 cousin Hermosi cousins from, from around the land of the world. I'm wondering what keeps you on on the good side? Because a lot of people, they stay, they stay good because of legacy or because of faith or God or whatever. You have so many skills that could very easily be turned to the negative. You're looking at sales and persuasions and easily ripping people off if you wanted to. And you have all those skill sets to do it and make short-term arbitrage and screw people if you wanted to, right? What keeps you on the good side of life if it's not faith and it's not legacy? So really, this is a really interesting question. We'll probably go over. Uh, I'll, I'll say, right at gut instinct, I would initially reject the good versus bad. Um, and I think that it's just a, a difference in time horizon. And so I would make the argument that I am better at being selfish than the person who is short-sighted. So they are also being selfish. I am being selfish. I'm just being selfish long. They're being selfish short. And so um, it's like if you have the patience to just wait for a long period of time, and I think I've made some content around this, which is like you can just give, 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 and you never need to ask. And at a certain point, you just start getting, right? And so it would be like akin to me trying to, you know, in the very beginning, I had, I had no followers, no nothing, and being like, hey, Evan, like, let's hop on a thing together. You might be like, I don't know, man. But if you build enough on your own, then then someone reaches out, right? And so um, I don't think it's good or evil. Uh, I think it's just long versus short. And so I would say that that's really the issue. And as a quick uh, tie into what you had you'd mentioned earlier about direct response uh, marketers, I think the difference is between direct response and branding. And in my opinion, branding has a significantly higher return on advertising spend and effort measured over a longer time horizon. Direct response has a much higher ROAS, you know, return on return on spend on a short time horizon. And so if you can wait for the longer time horizon to compound, then you're like Louis Vuitton just has a picture of a model next to a purse. They don't need to say two bags for, you know, two bags, 50 percent off. They don't need to do two upsells immediately after that because they know that they can sell a bag for five thousand dollars that cost them one hundred dollars to make. Right. Because of the brand. But you don't get that overnight. You get that over years and over decades. And if you want that kind of power, it takes time. And so it's still very selfish to do it that way. You're just patient. He's a philosopher. I love it. <laughs> Listen, final, final question. For people who, who you give so much to everybody now, and, and as you famously say, you got nothing to sell. You're just here trying to, trying to help and serve when your book is 99 cents. But if people wanted to, like out of the, you've given so much important to them, if they were going to think about you today, 
and whether it's just holding you in their thoughts or taking some kind of action in their life, like what would you have them do if they wanted to repay you somehow through their thoughts or actions? I mean, share, share the stuff, help other people out. Somebody who's like, what can I do for you? I'm like, be successful. Well, I guess like, just don't be, you know, don't be in your, in your parents' basement, not doing something like that's what you can do. Like, cause for me, like you said, I know I'm going to die and people will forget about me in 500 years. It doesn't matter. Right. And so, um, like do something for you. And that, that makes me happy. And, you know, from a monetary perspective, if you crush it and you cross 3 million, 10 million, whatever, and you want us to like participate and, and help you go further, we'd love to invest. We'd love to talk. That's what acquisition.com is about. So like, that's, you know, that's our play, but for everybody else, we're just here to help. And, you know, if you just go from 10,000 a month to a hundred thousand a month and you never get past that, love you. You know what I mean? Like you did it, you took action. You, you're already probably in the 1% of Americans and you need to be recognized for that. Recognize yourself. That's all. I mean, that's, that's it. What else is there? You know what I mean? Like, I, I think, um, this might be a good statement to, to close with, but like Leon, shoot, LL Bean, Leon, I think his last name is Leon Wood, uh, who started LL Bean. Uh, when asked why he didn't make LL Bean more profitable or more aggressively, you know, do stuff, he says, I already eat three meals a day. He's like, what would I do with a fourth? Right. And I think that that's a lot of the perspective with it, which is like a lot of people want to start businesses because they want to work with people they care about to do something they find meaningful to help people. And it's like, well, then, I mean, that's that's what we do. And so people are like, you're helping people. What do you want back? I'm like, that's what people say they want to do to begin with. So it's like, well, that's I'm I'm doing the thing I don't, you know, I'm doing the thing. Leon, Leon would be. That was a really obscure reference, but I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Alex Hamoz in the house. Appreciate you, man. Thank you for the love, the energy, the time, all the content you're making for showing up. And dude, I'm, I'm super excited to see everything else you're going to be making, especially the content. I really love what you're putting out in the world and I really appreciate you. Appreciate you. Thank you for taking the time and to your audience. You know, very nice to meet you. Thank you for giving us your attention. Um, and hopefully you got a, a good return on it. Thank you, man. Take care. We'll see you soon.